0: Good morning. Your reading today is Genesis 45: 1 through 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, "Have everyone leave my presence!" So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, "I am Joseph. Is my father still living?" But his brothers were not able to answer him, because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin. that it is I, who am speaking to you, tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him.
1: Thanks, Heather. I think that was my fault, by the way. I, I turned this on a little early. <laughs> if we read one of the most, or if we read one of the most moving lines in all of Genesis in the last chapter, Judah saying, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. If if we read one of the most moving lines in all of Genesis last week, we read one of the most moving scenes in all of Genesis this week. Joseph reveals himself, his true identity to his brothers. The testing was done. The final exam was over and the brothers passed by the grace of God. God's grace had made them faithful, and so they were welcomed back into fellowship with God and with Joseph. All of this is dramatically portrayed in our passage for this morning. In order to help you get, all of us get as much as possible out of this, I'm going to work through it in three parts. In the first part, I'll briefly recap the story. And then in the next two parts, I want to highlight the two main themes of this story. First, reconciliation. And then secondly, the mysterious union between God's sovereignty over all things and the real choices we make as humans and how he combines them together for greatest glory. In the end, the main point of all of this is that God is sovereignly working out the reconciliation of His people. Let me say that again. The main point of all of this is that God is sovereignly working out the reconciliation of His people. First with Himself and then with each other. Let me say this as well. One day that work will be finished. It will all be done. It is certain now because of the cross of Jesus. But one day, all we will know is the fullness of reconciliation with God and his people. One day that will happen. In this passage, as the title of the sermon is meant to indicate, we get a glimpse of what that will be like. Broken things are made whole. (laughs) Crooked things are made straight. We get to see something that was broken and and that sin had wrecked in the relationship between Joseph and his brothers made right as it was as it ought to have been. And in that, in every place we find that, and I'll say more about this in a bit, we're getting a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. We're, we're catching a glimpse of the fullness of the work of God that is yet to come. So the testing is done. The final exam was over. And in this, through the faithfulness of Joseph and his brothers, they were reconciled to God and to one another. The main point is that God is doing this. And here's what I want you to hear. This, This is the way one commentator put it. Reconciliation, the kind that we see in this passage, comes through forgiveness. And forgiveness through the recognition of God's sovereign rule over all of this. Let's pray that God would help us to see this, to savor this, and then to be transformed by all of this. God, this is an awesome passage. It is so sweet. We've been through hard things in Genesis. We've seen sin of the most grievous kind. And in it, we have seen our own sin of the most grievous kind. Through your word, you've revealed to us so far the sinfulness of mankind. Apart from your grace, your word in Genesis has told us that every inclination of our heart is only evil continually. That's a lot of evil. We've seen that. We've seen that in the text. We've seen that in the sinfulness of the world and your judgment of it and the fall and the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and the treachery of Joseph's brothers. We've seen it over and over. And in that, a mirror into our own hearts, the true nature of our own hearts. And in that, the need for your grace, the need to be reconciled to you and our inability to do that on our own. And in this passage, we catch a glimpse of the sweetness of the complete restoration work that you do. Thank you that all of this is a foreshadowing of the cross. All of this was possible only because one day you would send your son Jesus to die in the place of sinners. All of the substitutionary offerings that we see in Genesis, we saw last week in Judah, and we saw earlier in Abraham and Isaac, and all of the substitutionary Offerings we see on earth are but glimpses of the substitutionary offering you, you would provide and from their perspective and have provided from ours in Jesus. So help us to see Jesus in this passage. Help us to see that your grace is our hope and the fullness of that comes to us through your son, through his suffering and death and resurrection. Open our eyes freshly to the greatness of your glory and grace in your gospel this morning. Change us by this. Help us to be reconciled to those, to, to you first and to those with whom we know contention now. That is the power of the cross. In Jesus name, amen. Well, throughout my life and especially in my capacity as a pastor, I've witnessed some pretty remarkable examples of forgiveness and reconciliation between people and God, but also between people and people. But I can say that none, even though they all required the same grace of God, none compares with the drama of the one we see between Joseph and his brothers, the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Having just heard last week, the end of chapter 44, the moving, humble, sacrificial words of the once diabolical brother, Judah, Joseph knew for sure that God had changed him, that he had changed all of his brothers, With that, Joseph was overcome, the text tells us, with emotion. It doesn't tell us exactly why he could not control himself. It doesn't tell us exactly what the source of his emotion was. It only tells us that he couldn't control himself, that he was overcome. Like all people, his response certainly was a complex array of feelings, can there be any doubt that there was a bit of exhaustion? What a, what a road he'd walked to get to this point. How much had he endured for the grace of God to show up like this? It was inevitably a bit of exhaustion, a, a bit of relief, a bit of apprehension. He seems to have genuine trust in the legitimacy of the work of God and his brothers, but, but man, they'd put him through a lot, hadn't they? There certainly had to be at least a measure of apprehension, certainly a bit of thankfulness, a bit of amazement. Oh my goodness, these were the same guys who couldn't even talk to me. They hated me so much not that long ago. A bit of a bunch of other things as well. But it seems plain as well that above all, (laughs) Joseph felt love for his brothers. Above all, he was filled with love for these people. Outwardly, he wept aloud to the point that the Egyptians heard it and heard of it, the whole household of Pharaoh. In the midst of all of this, Joseph commanded the Egyptians to leave his presence, to leave the room. And then he made himself known to his brothers. What a scene this is. Through tears, he said to them, I am Joseph, even as he wondered, is my father still alive? You're here. Is my father doing well? Not yet sure what to make of all of this. You can picture the brothers like, what is going on here? Egypt has been a weird place to us from the beginning, but this takes the cake. They were stunned and dismayed to the point where they didn't even know what to say. Verse three tells us they they were silent. Everything about their time in Egypt had been crazy. You can just picture how nothing made sense to them. They'd been inexplicably, falsely accused of being spies They had their grain money mysteriously returned to them. They'd been held hostage, one of them. And there was even a feast in their honor from spies and accused and money and all this to, hey, let's have a party for you guys. You you have to picture them feeling the sense of whiplash and not even really understanding why. They, They couldn't possibly have made sense of their experiences to this point until now. Grace, it's easy to picture their brains. Now that they know that this is Joseph, all of a sudden they, they've got to rethink through all of their experiences. Uh, if they're like me, and you know, I always imagine they are, which who knows, but, but their brain is just reeling. There's this new key piece to reality that just undid everything that they had known over the, the past bit. And now they've got to rethink all of it frantically seeking to reinterpret everything in light of this new revelation that their brother was this governor of Egypt. Can you imagine? I mean, just, just picture that. I don't know what the wonkiest scenario you've ever been in, but imagine life being really confusing and really strange. And then you find out that the cause of all of it is this brother that you thought was gone. Goodness gracious. Ultimately, however, the question that had to be in front of them because that's what they asked was what does all of this mean? Like, okay, I, I don't even know if I understand all this, but it means something. Are we toast? Is he about to is he about to crush us? Is this the beginning of the end? Is is he going to curse us as we cursed him? Is there anything we can do or say to avoid getting what we had given? With that emotion-filled backdrop, Joseph called his brothers near to him. He again told them who he was and went about trying to set their minds at ease. I am the brother whom you sold to Egypt. There, there's, a, there's an acknowledgment of their sin and their treachery. He didn't hide from that, but that's exactly what makes what happened next so sweet. But you need not be distressed or angry any longer. Because through your really sinful actions, brothers, God has been doing really, really good things. Through your really sinful actions, God has been doing really, really good things. Life saving, promise keeping, re- relationship reconciling things, things beyond what you could have imagined. Joseph went on to explain that they were only two years into a seven year famine, but that God had a plan for all of that, for all of it. The brothers had intended, plainly, clearly, in their hatred, to end Joseph's life, Grace, but God had intended to save many lives through their evil intentions, along with preserving his covenant promise and promised people. It's awesome. In the most significant line of the passage, Joseph clearly and unapologetically stated something we're going to come back to in the next two parts of the sermon. So, therefore, in light of all of this, it was not you, it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's truly remarkable. I hope to help you see how in just a bit. And from there, Joseph spoke to his brothers concerning God's handiwork. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And so he went on to explain how God had used that, what he had done through it, and why. God had made Joseph as a father to Pharaoh. The Lord of all of his house and the ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph even went so far as to console his brothers. He, he didn't merely state the facts that everything is okay. He went on to console them. And he did so by acknowledging that God had made him ruler over Egypt, where Joseph's brothers had hated him. Get, get this, remember? He told them the dream, his dream, where they had earlier hated, hated him for dreaming that He would rule over them. Guys, get this. Hear this, Grace Church. This is awesome. This is the sovereign hand of God at work. Where Joseph's brothers had hated him earlier for dreaming that he would rule over them, God made him ruler over them, and much, much more. What had been their greatest lament became here, their greater salvation. Just just keep that in mind. When life is hard, keep this in mind. I don't mean to say you're going to be ruler, ruler over Egypt one day necessarily, but keep in mind that what had been their greatest lament became their much greater salvation, them and millions of others. That's awesome. What were the brothers to do, though? What did this mean? What were they going to do? Joseph insisted that they quickly return to Canaan and their father, They were to relay all of this to him and joy and wonder and praising God. And then they were to quickly bring him to Egypt so that he might spend his last days under the protection and provision. Remember, this will be then as as he does finally arrive, the fulfillment of the second of Joseph's dreams. But it was to be the fulfillment of of the dreams. It was to come under the protection and provision and preservation and presence of Jacob. By God's design, through Joseph's position of power, they would all be united together again in prosperity and joy. The dramatic scene comes to a close with Joseph falling upon his brother Benjamin's neck and weeping. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them also. What an awesome scene. They talked freely and wondered what the future might hold in light of this awesome divine turn of events. Quite a story, isn't it? Who among us, I mean, I know most of you in this room, if not all of you, have read this before, and so you knew how it ended up. But imagine for a minute that you didn't. Who among us, if you didn't already know the ending, would have predicted this just a few chapters ago. To read this rightly, Grace, is to be shocked. Even if you're familiar with this, ask God to shock you, (laughs) give you a fresh sense of wow by the power of God to bring his plan about through such unlikely circumstances. Again, draw to mind the aspect of your life you're just not sure how God could get you out of. And remember this. To read this rightly is to ask, is As God told Abraham earlier in Genesis 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? As I mentioned in the beginning, all of that, everything Joseph had experienced to this point was intended by God to do two things. Put on full display his ability to reconcile even the most estranged parties, which is vertical first and horizontal second, and then second, to give his people a clear picture of the mysterious relationship between God's sovereign reign and our real responsible choices. Let's look to each as we get to the final two parts of the sermon. Reconciliation. One of the most important things, Grace, that you can realize, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or aren't one at all, one of the most important things you can realize is that the entire Bible tells one grand story. It is made up of 66 books, spanning centuries and cultures and genres and conditions and authors, all combining, all coming together by God's inspiration and design to tell the greatest story of all. In short, the Bible tells this great story of God's creation of heaven and earth and everything in them, mankind's rebellion and fall, God's salvation and our eternal fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the whole story of the Bible. It all exists to tell that one grand story. Although the Bible tells this entire story, the vast majority focuses on the middle two. The vast majority of the Bible focuses on the middle two elements, mankind's sin and God's reconciling work. We get some of creation and some of the final redemption, But the vast majority of the Bible focuses on the middle two elements. In other words, most of the various stories and commands and songs and prophecies in the Bible are meant to help God's people understand their own rebellion against God, yours and mine and that of all people, and God's plan to rescue us from it. Both of those clearly are seen in Joseph's life. But here in Genesis 45, we see most clearly God's reconciling work. This passage exists in large measure to show God's people what it looks like when God puts broken things, sin broken things back together. And then that is such remarkable hope. Remember again, let's go back for just a minute. You got to feel this. You got to feel this deep in your bones. You got to see yourself in this before God. Remember again how Joseph's brother's hatred for him seethed to the point that they sold him into slavery. They only did not murder him because they couldn't get any money from that. Remember that. Feel that deep in your bones. Remember also that their having done so is what led Joseph to being thrown into prison on account of the lies of his master's wife, the one he had been sold into slavery to. Remember also how he languished in prison as a result of the events that his brother's sin set into motion because the cupbearer forgot about Joseph in prison. And remember that all of this took place over 20 years. I know some of you have suffered significantly, but I know that most of you have not suffered in this way over this length of time, 20 plus years. This was no mere blip on the radar. Joseph's suffering, and again, feel this. That's why we get several chapters on this. Joseph's suffering at the hand, hands of his brothers had spanned the majority of his life to this point. Grace, it really is hard to overstate how deep Joseph's hate, brothers' hatred was for him, how prolonged their mistreatment and its effects was, how far reaching their sinful actions went, and how much pain Joseph suffered on account of them. Try to get your head and your heart around that, because it is only once, it is, it is only once that you've walked with Joseph in the darkest darkness of his life, that you're able to experience the proper awe and wonder at the glorious reconciliation that takes place in this passage. And that's how sin is. It is as you're able to see your sin, not not mainly or certainly not merely on a horizontal level compared to the people around you, but in light of the holiness of God. It is only once you've come to realize how deep and dark and thorough your sin is against God that you can know the amazingness of grace. It is only once you can see how broken this relationship was and how significant the suffering was between, in Joseph's life because of his brothers, that you can appreciate the grace and glory of God on display in this passage. Instead of anger and revenge, Joseph was brought to tears of love. Instead of justice, he comforted his persecutors. Instead of tormenting them as he had tormented him, he assured his brothers that they no longer needed to be angry or in despair with themselves. Instead of unleashing his pain on them, he reminded them of God's plan. Instead of trying to exact from them that which they had taken from him, He promised to protect and to provide for them. Instead of the coldness and bitterness, which all of us have probably known, he hugged and kissed them through tears. Grace, again, it is hard to overstate how justified Joseph would have been in being filled with anger at the mistreatment and longing for revenge. Indeed, almost everything in our society today, and today more than ever, screams for Joseph to frame himself above all as the victim in this, which he was. He was the victim of sin and treachery and to seek justice for himself. But as I hope to have helped and continue to help you see, God frames this story much, much differently, doesn't he? The the story of Joseph and his brothers is framed very differently, Recognizing that, Joseph gave his brothers not what they deserved, but what he himself had received from God. Mercy. (laughs) Do you see that grace? Do you see the picture of the gospel this is? Joseph certainly couldn't have understood all of this, but we can on the other side of Jesus. See this grace. Joseph gave his brothers not what they deserved, but what he had received from God. Mercy justice would have demanded, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Joseph did not give them justice. He gave them grace, the grace God had given him. And through God's and then Joseph's abundant mercy and grace, the family was reconciled to God and then to one another. Instead of a bloodbath, it was a baptism of tears. Instead of merely refusing to do to them as they'd done to him, Joseph received them back with full pardons. And fellowship as God had received him. Instead of the retribution our society would be clamoring for, there is only reconciliation. Grace, I don't know the answer to every question you might have about the real suffering in your life that you've experienced at the hand of another. I don't know every answer to that. And I certainly don't mean to minimize any of it because I know some of you have been made to suffer greatly. But I do know that Joseph's story and God's wisdom flips almost everything the world tells you on its head in terms of how you ought to respond to it. Instead of putting ourselves at the center of our story, Joseph teaches us that God alone belongs there. Instead of giving ourselves to getting what we deserve, we must first give ourselves to getting glory for God. And instead of giving to others what they deserve, we must first give what we have freely received, mercy and grace. Do you see what this means? Do you see how radically different this perspective is from the one that we hear so often today? What's more, do you see how helpful this is? How hopeful it is for even the most broken human relationships? What's most do you see this for what it really is? A picture of the gospel itself, wherein sinners like you and me, sinners who have rebelled against God a million times more than what Joseph's brothers rebelled against him or anyone on this earth has rebelled against you, are reconciled to God, even as Joseph's brothers were reconciled to him. So the question we're left with is, how is this possible? How could God bring this about? How could Joseph possibly have forgiven his brothers for their treachery and the decades of suffering that it had caused? How could he have forgot, how could he have gotten over this hurt as deep as it was? How could he willingly let them get away with their sins without proper punishment? How could he set aside justice so easily? And that leads to the final section, the mysterious relationship between God's sovereign reign over all and mankind's real responsible choices. This is the last section. Grace, the Bible is filled with real accounts of a real God and real people, which we must really consider. In other words, it is not merely a historical record of some distant, irrelevant people that we read here. Interesting, but not significant for our daily living. It is not that. Read rightly then, we, we are meant to consider the, the story of Joseph and his brothers and a, imagine the greatest mistreatment you've ever endured. You're meant to draw to mind right now the greatest mistreatment you've ever endured. You're meant to, to test your own perspective and responses against Joseph's and learn from it. We're meant to see the glory that God got in all of this, and long to glorify him in our broken relationships just as joseph did we're meant then to ask how joseph was able to think and feel and act as he did in order that we might think and feel and act in a similar manner by the grace of god the text tells us of course there are several layers of answers to this question but ultimately the answer is the grace of god Indeed, wherever God's people act as God intends in any way, and in particular in this way, wherever God's people act as God intends, it is because God provided the will and the strength to do so. Know that, Grace. If you ever act in a manner pleasing to God, it's because God gave you the grace to do that and the strength to do that. Joseph was able to love his brothers then in spite of their treacherous acts against him because God granted him that grace, seek that grace from God. But the text gets a little more specific as to the form that grace took. More specifically, God used in some ways the genuine repentance of the brothers to soften Joseph's heart to receive them back. God calls us to be patient and kind with our enemies as he was patient and kind with us in our rebellion, that they might turn to repentance. But the fact that God granted true repentance to Joseph's brothers, while it made it easier for Joseph to have this disposition towards them, it certainly wasn't required for it. And so here is the most specific answer this text gives us as to where Joseph got this grace to love this people well. It wasn't ultimately through their own repentance. It was it tells us that God's love and power and grace came to Joseph in one main form. Again, draw to mind your most broken, painful relationships. where, where? would the grace of God come from to help you to love in that and, and to long for reconciliation, even apart from the repentance, where would that come from? And he tells us that of the revelation that God was sovereignly working an awesome good through Joseph's brothers, mistreatment of Joseph. we us say that again. God helped Joseph to love and forgive his brothers in spite of their treacherous acts against him by revealing to Joseph that he was using their treachery to save the lives of many, especially God's covenant people, through Joseph, through this famine. We see that especially and most clearly in verses 7 and 8. Talking to his brothers, Joseph said, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, don't miss the logic of the text. It's, he's making an argument here, and it's a simple one. Joseph was enabled by God to love and forgive his brothers for their sin by revealing to Joseph that he was doing something much, much greater through their sin, through their sin than the hardship he'd endured because of it. That is unbelievable. <laughs> Let me say that again, Grace. Joseph was enabled by God. The grace of God came to Joseph in the form. He was able to love and forgive his brothers for their sin. God did this in Joseph by revealing to Joseph that he was doing something much, much greater through their sin than whatever hardship he had endured because of it. Let me give you a, a simple, silly, probably familiar example of what this means. How many of you, if I said, hey, I, You know, just good news, Grace. I brought a bag of hornets, and I would love to put them in a room with you in order that you might be stung by them. How many of you would sign up for that? The answer is none of you, at least none of you, as long as you're of your right mind. No one wants to endure the pain of a hornet fight. You'll lose every time. It's, in fact, I mean, it's, if you've had it, you know. Okay, well, let me let me change the equation just a little bit. How about this? What if I told you that I would give you $50 to do that? Now, again, most of you are thinking no, right? <laughs> Depending upon your financial situation, though, if you're a college student, <laughs> uh, you might consider it at least for a second and then, okay, no. Well, let me change, change this one more time. How about this? What if I said that if you'd let me throw you in a hornet's nest into a room for a few minutes, I would share with you the cure for cancer. I would give it to you, to give to the whole world. Assuming you believed I had the ability to deliver on my promise, I bet all of you would take that deal. The hornet's stings would hurt exactly the same as they would have if you got nothing. They'd hurt exactly the same as if you got 50 bucks for it. But while you wouldn't endure it for those two, in those two situations, you probably would gladly endure it, even with joy in the knowledge that through that you would be able to save the lives and suffering of untold millions. Again, grace, where does the grace of God come from to endure the mistreatment of others while longing for them to be reconciled to God and to you? to giving them the mercy and grace God has given you, not what they deserve. Where does that come from? That's where. That's what Joseph came to understand about his suffering. His suffering was unpleasant, to say the least. Worse than his 20 years of hornet stings. But in the knowledge that it was the means by which God would accomplish the preservation of countless lives, even his covenant promise. Through that knowledge, Joseph was eager to endure it and forgive those who directly caused it. Grace, and this is truly staggering, the simple reality for you and for me and for all who are hoping in Jesus is that that is always the case for Christians. In every suffering, in every trial, in every difficulty, that is always the case. Every hardship you and I endure is always for some greater good. For God is always working in the suffering of his people just as he did through Joseph's. That is an awesome promise of God. That is why Peter and James commanded Christians to consider every trial all joy. The promise is most clearly seen and one of the sweetest promises God gives is in Romans eight twenty eight. He promises that he is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Knowing that Joseph is one example of what is always true for the people of God frees us to love in staggering ways. This is simple, but rightly understood, it's also confusing. And we're meant to ask another question. Joseph says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. How can that be, Grace? Grace we've we've read over and over over the course of several chapters exactly how Joseph's brothers felt we've read what they did and even how they ended how how all of that ended up for Joseph how then could it be that it was not by their hand but God's or or what does it mean that it was by God's hand and not theirs that Joseph ended up where he did And what does that say about the nature of the choices that you and I make in life? Do you feel this tension? Is it clear to you why this is an important issue to settle on? If Joseph's brothers get this, if Joseph's brothers made real sinful choices that led to Joseph's suffering, then how could it be said that it was God who brought Joseph to Egypt or Conversely, if it was God who brought all this about, how then could Joseph's brothers be said to have truly sinned and be responsible for it? Something has to give, right? Before I offer the most basic answer to this set of questions, I want to ratchet up the tension by reading a few other passages that talk about this as well. This tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people. In just a few chapters, we'll get to a passage that says this. Joseph's still talking to his family. You meant evil against me. You made real choices. You, you really sinned, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Acts two twenty two and 23. Think about the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. This Jesus... Delivered unto death on the cross, according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand of law, hands of lawless men. Acts four twenty seven and twenty eight. For truly, in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod. This is God. God anointed both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts Thirteen, twenty-seven. for those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They chose to do the condemning work and therefore fulfilled God's sovereign purposes. Philippians twelve, this is Paul describing his own suffering for proclaiming the gospel to the world. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel by God's design. And one of the clearest for me in the entire Bible is Philippians 2. Grace Church, this is a command from God to you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. I hope at least one of those passages, and there are many more, helped impress upon you that there is a relationship between God sovereignly working all things according to his purposes and you making real choices for which you are responsible. So what do we make of all this? It makes sense that God's people find strength to endure trials in the knowledge that God is using all of those trials for good. That makes sense. It also makes sense that in light of this, we'd be happy and eager to forgive those who cause our trials in the knowledge that they are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Those things make sense, I think. I hope they do to you. They do to me. But how do we make sense of the fact that God still holds these sinners that he's using responsible for their sins? Philosophers, and this is a lot of my background, not from a Christian perspective, but the relationship between determinism and freedom, philosophers understandably make a really big deal out of this. Most tend to frame it as an either or proposition. Either God is sovereign and we are left with some form of determinism Or mankind has genuine freedom and God's sovereignty is somehow limited. In merely human terms, that argument from philosophers makes sense. And yet that's just not how the Bible talks. It does not pit one of those things against the other as philosophy does. As we saw a minute ago, in the same passages, both God's sovereignty and human choice and responsibility are taught in the Bible In the end, we're given two grand realities that never change, that always exist at the exact same time. Number one, by God's design, all people are made in God's image and are therefore real moral agents who make real moral choices for which we are responsible. That's one inalienable truth. Here's the second one. By God's design... God is continually working in and through every one of our real choices to accomplish his perfect, unstoppable, sovereign will. The Bible teaches both at the same time, always without exception. The Bible reveals over and over that both of these things are true at the same time, even if we cannot fully understand how. There is more to be said than this, and if you really want to drill in the end for which God created the world, Jonathan Edwards is your go-to place. But there is more that can be said, but not less. This is always true, these two things. Armed with this knowledge, Joseph was empowered to endure the persecution of his brothers and the resulting decades-long suffering that it produced. He was also empowered to eagerly forgive his brothers instead of responding in kind. Likewise, armed with the same and even greater knowledge of this mystery of God, we too, you and me, are freed to be reconciled to our persecutors regardless of the amount of pain they've caused us. I say even greater because we know something Joseph didn't. We know about the cross, the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, without fully realizing it, God's grace and Joseph's forgiveness is the picture of the gospel that was to come. In the first half, here's my conclusion. In the first half of Genesis 45, we find a sweet, sweet story of wrong things being made right. Crooked things being straightened, broken things being fixed, and alienated things being reconciled. Wherever we find this, big or small, in the Bible or in our own lives, we are catching glimpses of the fullness of the gospel glory that awaits us in heaven. Jesus' blood guarantees that one day all that sin has stained and broken and distorted will be made new. God is so kind to give us glimpses of that awesome reality all over the place if we have eyes to see. Would you look to Jesus today, therefore, and be reconciled to God? And would you look to him today, therefore, and be reconciled to those who have wronged you in the certain knowledge that God is using even their wrongs in your life to get glory for himself and to do great good for all who love him. This is the power of the cross. Amen.